0: I thought by now they'd fall, but you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Faithfulness I'm still in your hand I know the Come to pass, praise the Lord. Jesus, you're still enough, you always will be. Keep me within your love, my heart will sing your praise. This is my confidence, you never fail, sing it again, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, faithfulness, I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence, I'm still in your hands This is my confidence You've never failed me yet you never failed
1: I wanted to get a a story published. In this story, the person was the author, the main character, and even the narrator explaining his or her own experiences. The story was brought to a potential publisher. After reading the work, and it is apparent that you are not the primary author, we can't publish it. Hebrews 12, 2 states, Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set God. I believe the Lord is saying that this picture applies to several who are listening today. While the picture is the story of your own life, it has left out the major part of God's authorship and plan for you to let another write his story, even his father. Here we see Jesus, who substituted his life on the cross in your place, so that in his book, the book of life, the plot of your faith story now is one of life and truth in the one who has all authority and all authorship. I believe the Lord wants you to know that yours is a supernatural story of eternal life in Christ Jesus. The story of God's love for us.
0: How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. All that turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was a calm. I know. I know, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Thank you, Lord.
2: going to take a moment to honor and pray for the dads in our midst. So if you'd be seated. Fatherhood is formative. It shapes and affects us in significant ways. And that's why Father's Day can draw out a variety of strong emotions from us, from gratitude for fathers who have been worthy of honor, to grief for dads that were taken from us too soon. To groaning for a role that was abandoned or abused in your life. Or because it's a role that you still long to fulfill. Or because you regret your failure to take it up faithfully. But God has created something called the family. And, and we're all aware of our need for it. The reality of the family wields powerful influence over us by design for help or for harm. We were created to be fathered. But these are days when fatherhood feels fragile. That's true in society with the epidemic of fatherlessness and the breakdown of the family. And and these are challenging times to be in any kind of position of leadership or authority, right? These days, authority is unwelcome. Authority is protested. And in many cases, that's because authority hasn't been modeled well or has been mismanaged. We live in times when certain roles are held intrinsically as suspect. And yet God has created this thing called fatherhood. These are days that have been filled with trouble, and 2020 has been a year where a father's role to provide for and to protect his family has has felt threatened, and it's been true of men in our midst and just aware of the the, the different stories represented here and those who are watching at home as uh, dads have walked through uh, job changes, there, there's been the the... Difficulty of uh, health risks that you've been facing, economic trouble that we've all been dealing with and social strife around us. And, And as fathers, we find ourselves seeking to lead amidst a thousand voices that are influencing our families. What kind of charge would serve us on this Father's Day? It's not uncommon in the, in the church world for Mother's Day to be met with grace, but Father's Day is when we lay down the law, you know, and load up the expectations on dads. Uh, mothers are given uh, a, a rose and a poem, and fathers are sent off with their marching orders and a kick in the pants. And it's often appropriate. It's, it's what we uh, need most. But I believe the Lord would want us to highlight one particular aspect of our calling as dads and for us to receive this same experience from our heavenly father and that's the role that a father has in imparting hope the scripture makes clear that the training and discipline a dad does is not to provoke his children to frustration colossians 321 says fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What's the opposite of discouragement? It's obviously encouragement. It's an instilling of confidence and of hope. In Deuteronomy 6, when God calls fathers to teach their children the commandments of the Lord, they're, they're to do so with the backdrop of the liberating hope of God's redemption. God had called them out as a people And he was bringing them to a land of promise. We need hope. Children need hope. Hope is what expands the horizon before us where we initially saw an end. It's a father telling his four-year-old daughter that her fears and nightmares will be gone when the morning comes. It's a dad Helping his nine year old son work through the, the discouragement that he's faced on, on the ball field. It's a dad talking with his 17 year old daughter about how life feels stuck for her right now and helping to broaden her perspective. It's a grandfather guiding his son in family leadership, bringing wisdom and life experience to bear, offering direction and guidance for trials. And of course, biblically, hope is not generic. It's not based in some kind of self confidence or just this positive outlook on life. It, it is based in God. It is located outside of us in the undeserved favor that Jesus Christ has purchased for us, that's then wielded for our benefit and over every day of our life. And it's one of the great privileges of a father to teach his his family redemptive hope. Our children and our grandchildren need this. And we need this. Without hope, life becomes a frantic and restless place as we try to grasp after whatever we think that we need in order to get through the next day. We resort either to heavy-handed manipulation or we disappear in withdrawal. Without hope, the future before us seems filled only with impossibilities. And without hope, we despair and we become irritable and we're difficult to be around and we seem unwilling to change. But hope is adoption in an orphaned world. It's the father's unique gift to his children. That's what Romans 8 teaches us in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what is the spirit who connects us to the fatherhood of God enable us to do? Look at what he says in verse 22. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to pray for what we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and we want to join that intercession of the spirit this morning as we pray for the fathers in our midst and so if the dads would stand and if your family's with you can gather around, lay hands on them, and I want to pray for all the fathers who are watching from home as well. Let's, let's go before God to receive from him what he desires to give. God, thank you for insight from your word that identifies our experience that describes it so helpfully, Lord, that normalizes the kinds of conditions and suffering that we walk through, Lord, as foreign and strange as 2020 has felt, Lord, it's not foreign to the Bible, to your purposes for your children. God, we, we don't need to read Romans 8 to know that we are beset with weakness, to know that we live a life that is often characterized by groaning, Lord, as fathers, to to feel our inadequacies, Lord, to, to feel the inabilities of the flesh, Lord, our longing to just walk out what you have called us to. or we know these things. But God, thank you for your word and thank you for the presence of your spirit, to provide what no headline can do, what, what no Father's Day card can communicate. Lord, you give hope. And so God, we, we pray for a flood of hope, Lord, invading all the fathers here and into our families as well. Lord, awakening courage, Lord, strengthening Lord, a, a sense of perspective beyond what natural eyes can see and perceive, Lord being in tune with the resources that you provide, Lord beyond just our own sense of motivation or ability, that we pray for power to walk in your calling lord the the different roles and the different seasons of life that are represented in our church body, Lord, from raising children in early years to teenagers and young adults to grandchildren or those who are walking in lord, different seasons of this journey in fatherhood lord would you give the the specific hope that's required to serve and to be faithful right now and as we look into the future maybe staring into a future that just seems like it's only going to bring more trouble and less reward. God, would you awaken hope in what eyes cannot see? Lord, give, as the song says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. God, thank you that we are fathered, that you love us, and that you care for every single one of us richly in Christ or receive your blessing today in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day uh, to the dads who are here. And thank you for gathering with us in this room. And those of you who are tuning in and gathering with us digitally, we know that you are with us in heart. And, uh, just long for the day we can see and be in person with everybody that God has called here. I Take a moment to consider our practice of giving to the Lord together. You know, Father's Day is a day where we bring gifts to dads. And one of the ways that we bring honor uh, to our Heavenly Father is through a practice of giving, through a practice of uh, tangibly locating hope in him and not in our finances, and, and just knowing like a good father, he is going to provide and will give good gifts to his children. Uh, there are different ways that you can give. There, there are um, offering boxes in the back of the room if you'd like to make use of those today, or you can give online through our app uh, or send in a check or through Bill Pay as well. We've got one announcement we are going to make noise about today, and that is our VBS It's going to be rolling out July 6th through 10th, and this year, unfortunately, we can't be all together with the kids Um, for VBS. We would typically put about 300 kids in closed space in this room, and that's not uh, feasible this summer. But uh, VBS is coming to all of you. Uh, We we are coming into your homes and on your devices. Uh, The theme is Under the Sea. And it's gonna track with the story of Jonah, and just a lot of creative stuff that's being put together. Uh, in fact, uh, Eric and Steve and Mackie in the back here we're, we're working several days on a stop motion music video. So just one little taste of the of the stuff that's being thrown together for a, a great experience, along with ways for families to connect with one another and with other families. Uh, in the church, but in order to um, experience all that, if you could just go ahead and sign up, uh, you can register uh, on our website. You can pull up on the Sunday tab the the registration there, and we'll make sure to put in your hands everything you need to have a great VBS. All right, Pastor Keith.
3: Good morning. Trying to look for faces that I haven't had a chance to see in months and months. How many of you guys are here for the first time since the COVID thing? That's not true, Terrence. You've been here multiple times. You're impossible to miss when you're here. Of course, I'm talking about Mount Terrence here among us. (laughs) Well, happy Father's Day to all of our fathers here, to our fathers who are at home, who are watching with your families. We, We miss seeing you guys. We miss getting a chance to pray for you, being here. Um... I know Father's Day, what a, what a sweet, sweet moment for uh, us honoring dads to be on the receiving end of that. I think I would join all the, the fathers who are among us in saying being a father has just been a joy and a delight. I am grateful for the adventure that I've been able to be on with my kids. Some of them were here in the first service, some of them are here now, so so grateful so blessed and so proud of you guys. And so I know
1: that is the heart
3: of these dads here as well for your kids. And I hope today is a special day of blessing for each of you dads. All right. Well, this morning you are actually going to read with me from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I faked everybody out last week and we didn't spend any time in that chapter. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 13 this week, we actually are going to be in that chapter. This summer which often in the summer we'll take a little bit of time and devote to some special topic or turn our attention to something. Just so happens the next space in our study of 1 Corinthians is on the love that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we've titled this summer series, A Love Story. This morning I want to clarify a love story by telling love's story. We have this this powerful thing that I think we all value at an unusual level, this thing called love. Can't think of too many things that are in our lives that we value and treasure, long for, pursue, want to experience than this thing called love. But where does that come from? Where does love come from? What's its origin? And when we go to pick that term up, what, is it, what does it mean? And where do we get our meaning when we use that term? So I, I want this morning to be about tracing back love's story, right? So let me make this statement. I think I wrote this out. If you've got a handout today, we've been giving out handouts or you can look this up on your app there's notes there as well, but ponder this thought with me. Love is a concept, it is an expression, a reality, an attribute that exists long before we came along. Love is completely defined and understandable before our times, right? It might feel like our times are redefining everything as we know it, but long before our times, love already had a definition. It was completely understandable. Before my personality touches this thing called love. Before my family added its own style and expression of love. Before my good and bad experiences, and everybody in the room has had good experiences with love and bad experiences with love. Before any song was written or novel or hallmark card were written, love already existed before it was the mantra for the hippies, you know, you guys who are old enough to be hippies you're in peace and love, before it was used to charge God with wrong. That's a big one, right? Because things happen in our lives where it feels like the wheels come off. And in that moment, it's almost like we want to charge God with wrong because our life stopped feeling like God loved us in that moment because life is hard and it's painful uh, right now. So love is huge. Love is an enormous reality that shapes, it makes our lives feel a certain way. And so if I were to put this into some kind of context, you know, in the galaxy in which we live, the sun that everything orbits around, has, it plays this unique role in our lives. It, It provides light and warmth and if you were just to mess a little bit with the orbit of Earth around the sun, just kick it out by a few degrees or something, you would transform the way life is on this planet. Right? That's what that people make science fiction movies out of this kind of stuff, right? You have this dystopian age where you've lost light and warmth and kind of I think that snow piercer thing I've seen a hundred gazillion advertisements for is about some people living on a train, they're going through the life on earth and it's freezing cold here because something happened, I guess, to create that environment. The sun is this massively influential thing. Love sits in our world like this massively influential thing. Our lives sort of orbit around it, right? In your notes, I said, if love gets removed from the human story, it seems impossible to think we could just Continue on with enjoyment and pleasure and meaning and goodness and purpose and all the things that we value about life. Or is there anybody here be willing to make a deal? If I were to tell you, I I can give you millions of dollars. You'll have millions of dollars to live the rest of your life. However, you will never be loved and you will never experience love ever again. Could I sell you that deal? There's something about love that just has an incredible value to our lives that we just could not ponder removing it. Right? Well, that's how the Apostle Paul starts chapter 13. He starts by removing love from this setting. And again, remember, we're going to get back to this, especially next week. 1 Corinthians 13 is set in this environment. It's set in the household of God. It is addressing a church in community, with each other, who's coming apart at the seams, having problems, and love is going to be brought into that that life there. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read the first few verses of this chapter. Verse 1. Paul says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And so Paul's got this interesting, if you will, Pauline math equation here that he says, you know, your life can be made of plenty of whatever, fill in the blank there. And in this setting, he's filling in church life stuff, powerful activity by the Holy Spirit amongst God's people, standing in faith that moves mountains, doing incredible things for God. But he says, even if you have that kind of plenty stuff in your life, if I subtract love from that, you've got Nothing. So love is a massively important deal in our lives, and it's massively important in any form of relationship we're having with each other, and that's what he's trying to get right. But be careful here, because love needs to find its place in our story. As big as it is, just like the sun's got to find its place in the story of our galaxy, right? When we back away from the sun, we realize something that the sun is set in a context, right? The sun is part of something much larger than just itself. And, and love is that way as well. Love has a context. Love is supposed to fit somewhere in our lives, and it's not supposed to have its own context that it makes itself up. Uh, we get to First Corinthians 13. I said this last week. You, you cannot, as a, as a Christian, take a beeline to the topic love, Paul takes 12 chapters to get there. Last week, we looked at at Colossians. We saw the other things that contribute to love ever being what it's going to be in our lives. We're going to need other things that Paul said along the way. What what you and I cannot do is pull up to this thing called love and begin to construct it ourselves out of the building materials that come out of our own lives. And, And I wonder if that's what we've done with this subject. Right. When you grew up, you came into a setting, people related to you a certain way, you begin to call certain things love. Right? I'm pretty sure that you were tampering with, messing with the topic of love long before you ever read the Bible. You were beginning to create your ideas. And when somebody treats you a certain way, when something makes you feel a certain way, you feel loved. You begin to describe love. Maybe you got around people, their behavior was part of your definition for love. Your personality began to influence how you define what love is and what it is not. You read a book. It was a love story. It it had emotions in it. People responded to each other a certain way. And you, again, filled in a little bit more of a definition about love. You heard a great song that really just resonated with you and it captured your heart and it just made you feel something and that found its way into your definition of love. So you've constructed something that you call love. And here's my great concern today. Does God answer to that concept that you've created throughout your life? Or does love answer to God? and what he's like, and what he says that it is. And I don't mean to be too weirdly philosophical in this, but this is a massive problem for us because love is like the sun in our lives. And once we put a definition on it, once we say what love is and what it is not, then everything else starts to answer to that, including God. So at some point we run the risk that we're going to call God to task and we're going to make him answer to our understanding of what love is. How many of you can imagine at some point God may be way out of bounds in what he's doing, what he's like. And we may not even believe God loves us based on that, right? So that's the danger that we run as we seek to understand what love is. So I'm, I'm going to take us today to God's declared love for us in a popular verse that perhaps we've read it too fast to really take apart what love is in this passage, right? It's the well-known verse, John chapter three, verse 16, and a couple of verses after it. So let's, let's read that. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Let's pray just for a moment. Lord, I join with each of us, whether we're here, whether we're watching at home today, Lord, we long for this thing called love. God, we want to be loved. We want to receive love. We want to know that we're loved and we want to love others. So this is a massively important topic to each and every one of us. Lord, where we start, start in our past, start with human popular ideas. Well, Lord, the place to start is to start with you. So God, help us today as we look to you so that we might understand this thing called love. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so this verse is well known by us, right? God so loved the world. This verse tells us God loves. Like many verses in the Bible, God loves. In fact, the Bible goes even farther than that. First John, later, the same writer, the Gospel of John, is going to later on say in 1 John 4 that God is love. God not only loves, but God is love is love so there's something about this topic this thing called love where, where do i go to discover it well I, i've got to start with realizing that god doesn't discover love It's not as though god is living as an existent being and someday he comes along and discovers something like you and i discover you know like oh that's copper oh uranium hey what could we do with that like god one day comes along and says oh there's hey, there's this thing love What could I do with that? That God never discovers love. It never gets introduced to him. There's never a moment that God is not love. It's part somehow of the essence of God's being. It, It emanates from him. His being gives off love. It's part of who he is. But it doesn't stand alone. And that's where our limited understanding as human beings gets a little bit challenging, right? God is, or God is love. Be careful that we don't turn around and say, love is God. Because when you and I construct love and make it this really big thing in our lives, and we're very tempted to have God answer to that, that's exactly what we've done. We've taken this thing called love And we've said, you know, the one thing that can't be tampered with, that can't be changed, that can't become something different, is what I understand love to be. So I'm going to begin to define everything out of my understanding of love. So I think I wrote this out in your outline. God is a being. Love is a characteristic. It's a quality. It's an attribute. It would be right to say that love answers to God, not God answers to love especially if we've made the mistake of allowing anything beside the nature and character of God to define love. If love takes on human definition and then we say that God answers to love, then ultimately we have made God to answer to us. Not unusual. Most of us, if we're honest, have had this experience. We're doing life going pretty normal, some rewards, some good things happen. We get attached to some things. We get affections for people and tragedy strikes. Suffering comes. Not unusual in that moment when in that moment, life doesn't feel very loving. Life doesn't feel rewarding. Life doesn't feel like anything we're enjoying. In that moment, it becomes very tempting to wonder whether or not God loves us. And maybe you've had that experience. You've been through something of a tragic loss, a painful reality. And at minimum, it's hard to be aware that God still does love us. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel like that in that moment. All right. So what happens when life has things in it when existence, when eternity has things in it that you and I may or may not fully understand or even appreciate? Does it it alter our view of God because we think, well, there's no way that God can be God because that's not loving and God is love. So God, you must be different than that. A number of years ago, almost 10 years ago now, a pastor from Minnesota wrote a book called Love Wins. His name was Rob Bell popular author, uh, popular pastor, uh, not very sound in his theology. But he did that in his book. He did exactly what I just described in his book. He had a concept called love that he forced everything to answer to his understanding of this thing called love. And so when He couldn't make God make sense with his version of love. He began to change his version of God. And so the thing that he called into question, the the, the aspect of suffering and pain that he couldn't make any sense out of, was the idea that there was something called an eternal hell. That a God of love would create a place of punishment that lasts forever. Forever. The book, Love Wins, undoes that idea. It holds out the thought that no, a God who is love would never let that happen. So somehow in what God has done, love is going to win in the end and eternal hell will not be what people experience. Somehow he managed to believe a bunch of things that the Bible actually speaks about, or at least he said he did. But he had created something in his own heart so powerful that God had to answer to that. So God couldn't be mysteriously a loving being who also had created a place called hell. He couldn't be that to this person. And if we're not careful, we will have done exactly that. We will have lived life in our frail humanity, in our limited intelligence, and we would have gathered a few ideas into the love category we would have formed and shaped love and then we would have presented that before God and said, hey God, you answer to this. And then love is gonna get, our life is gonna get to a moment where we're gonna turn to God and we're gonna say, you don't love me. Based on what? Based on what I created. You don't fulfill this. How many guys either have children or you can remember being a child that turn to your parents or maybe your kids have turned to you and they've accused you that you don't love me. Just a moment of just intense hurt and confusion. And just, it just, whatever, whatever you're doing as a parent feels like to them, you don't love me. And they're just angry, right? In this moment, I have, I have a vivid memory of being, I don't even remember how old I was, but I was little. And I can remember being in the kitchen. My mom had done something. We were probably having a number of things that didn't go really well at that moment. But I just became so hurt and so angry by what she did that I would said something like that to her: "That you don't love me." And I said, "And I'm running away from home." And my, you know, my mom was one of those old school moms. You know, it's like you couldn't bluff her. She was just kind of like, "Well, all right, you just can't stand it here anymore." I guess I'll help you pack. And she literally did. We walked in my room, opened the bottom drawer of my dresser. She took a brown paper bag, brought it in the room there with me and I packed clothes and she sat there and told me what I probably ought to pack in there. Loaded up, rolled the little top of the paper bag down, walked out the front door of the house, walked down the first block, walked halfway into the second block. And at that age, that's probably about as far as I'd been in the neighborhood. You know, so I'm in the second block and it kind of all of a sudden somehow it dawns on me. Where am I going? This is a little scary. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going back right now. So I decided to punish her for a while, eventually returned back home. But you know, I was in a moment where whatever you're doing, I'm interpreting it through my little boy lens. And in that moment, you are disqualified. You you don't fulfill the standards by which I have decreed love comes into my life. You don't love me. You know, when you live life a little bit longer, you start realizing some things about life, right? About your own existence, about what's really good for you and what's not. And then when you become a parent, you turn around saying things like, I sound just like my parents. And you're doing stuff to your own kids that eventually you realize, no, that's that's exactly what love does in life. But you know, it took me a while to value some things in my life that were really good things. Right? When you're younger, um, you don't have a great value for delay over impulsiveness. Right? I, I just I don't want to have to wait. Right? It doesn't feel loving. There's nobody as a child who's looking at their parents saying, oh, yeah, make me wait for that. That's loving. That's really loving. No, no, no. It feels like if you loved me, you'd impulsively just let me have what I want. I didn't have a value for character formation. Versus just temporary enjoyment. The idea that somebody could actually care about the future of my own character in a way to say, hey, you know, right now, it'd be best if you didn't have that, if you needed to wait for that. Well, there's a point in which there's, there's no way I'm going to call that loving. It took me a long time to realize that there is there's a collective good and there's an individual I got the individual good thing really fast. I figured that out really fast. So if you're going to show up and be, be labeled by me as loving, it's going to be because you showed up in my individual good. But what if you showed up in collective good? What if you were doing things that made my individual good secondary to the collective good? Well, eventually I got to a point in life where I saw that's a good thing. That would be a loving thing to do. I didn't love the idea of putting something off for the sake of the future. Right? I grew up with one brother. I don't think my brother ever had a dime. He just spent everything. Everything he get, he would spend it. And I was like the opposite. I like to save things, so I would always put money in a say. I had a savings account when I was a kid. So I always put money away. He never had money. For him, everything was right now. Don't worry about gains in the future. Just do it right now. So if your personality is involved, you wouldn't label long-term benefit as a loving action. You just, if you don't do this for me right now. And then there are, you know, eventually we read our Bible, we find out there's a God who is working his sovereign purposes in every nook and cranny of the universe, every molecule, every moment is answering to sovereign purposes that God has for his creation versus personal preferences that I have for my life. So I bring all these things to me and I pick up stuff and actions and I'm not interested in God managing the universe. I just want him to show up in my personal preferences and if he doesn't show up in that category then I say you don't love me. That's not Love. Right? So this is the great danger when we come to this topic, this important, important topic, that we're not taking love as though it's this thing that you and I can build out of our own experiences and our own understanding. Detach it from God. It's got nothing to do with the being of God and who he is. We discovered it in the side of a mountain or we discovered it in our own heart, this thing called love. And now it defines what we say about love. But God is love. Whatever you're hoping love to be, and I'm hoping love to be, it has to answer to who God is. D.A. Carson wrote a book called, he said, If people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that this God, however he, she, or it may be understood, is a loving being. That's what makes the task of the Christian witness so daunting. For this widely disseminated belief in the love of God is set with increasing frequency in some matrix other than biblical theology. To put it another way, we live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. God has a certain character. There are certain things that are true about God all the time, every moment. But we like love, and so we're going to detach it, and then we're not going to believe in the other aspects of God, but we're going to still try and understand love. He says, I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God the providence of God or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. If you and I are going to pick up this thing called love and ex- understand what it is, it has to be related to the other things about God that are also true. It is not a topic or a thing by itself that you and I can ever handle on its own, detached from other realities. A.W. Tozer said the apostle John by the spirit wrote God is love and some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. This is a great error. Equating love with God is a major mistake which has produced much unsound religious philosophy. The words God is love means that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. It expresses the way God is in his unitary being, as do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. Because God is immutable, he always acts like himself. And because he is unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another. God can be acting in a moment that looks like the most unfavorable, difficult, why on earth is this going on activity that God is behind. And in that moment, he doesn't stop being love. That's gotta be remembered when we go to understand what love really is. One more theologian says, John John Frame says, theologians are wrong when they think that the centrality of their favorite attribute excludes the centrality of others. These writers are right in what they assert, but wrong in what they deny. He points out one of them, a fellow named Reichel, is right to say that love is God's essence, but wrong to deny that holiness is. And that kind of error is sometimes linked to other theological errors. If you can think of the the existence, the being of God like like a a wheel, there's this hub and out of this hub come these spokes into the rim of this wheel. How many guys would like to get on a bicycle that's got a wheel with one spoke? Just one, right? One spoke going from the hub to the edge of the wheel. How far do you think you'd ride on that bike? Right? Not far, right? Because I guess as long as that one spoke is pointing down, the wheel will stay in place. But the second you roll, it's over, right? The whole wheel's going to collapse and your ride is over. But when it comes to God being like this wheel, there, a, there is a spoke called love. There's another one called holy. There's another one called righteous, true, merciful, just, this, this is all who God is. This wheel gets filled out by all that God is. So there's never a moment where God stops being all that he is. So whatever our understanding of love, it's got to be originating in the person of God himself who is multi-spoked, if you will. Now, if I take that back to me to John 3.16 and I read through this verse, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of help in understanding why the things that are in this verse are in this verse. Right, we love this verse because it educates us about God loving us. Right? We've been told, hey, God so loved the world. Ooh, put your name there. God so loved Keith. And when we've done all these things, but have we stopped for a second to look at all that's in this verse, sitting right there, cooperating with and getting along with this word love? So here's the beginning of that verse. God so loved that he gave his only son. So love is a, a motivating force in this passage. When one goes to figure out why does God do what he does, he does it because of love. In this passage, it highlights that. God so loved, and it's an intensity, it's a word of intensity that's willing to go to extremes. God does extreme things. God so loved that he gave his son. That's the most extreme thing that he could have done. So hold on to this because we'll are gonna pick it up next week because this is week is about God. But, but Paul's interest in love is not simply about educating us about God's love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he's trying to help us love each other. So the same love that has God so loving that he would give his son is going to then turn around and operate in us and cause us to be patient and kind and enduring with one another. It's the same same love. So that's what motivates this love. But, But have you stopped and recognized the strange elements that are in this verse together? God so loved. Who does God love? Well, in this passage, he loves the world. But his son is in this passage as well. Does God love the son? I think he does. I think we're pretty clear on that. God the Father loves the son. But how does this love feel to the son in this passage? You know, you and I see each other in this passage, so we love this passage. God so loved us. But did God love his son in this moment? Because he's about to give his son up to suffer and die in our place. Does, does love give up the son to suffer and die? Yes. But you know, if I'm standing over here in the place of the son and I'm I'm receiving that love, right? If this is you and me. That don't feel like love. I've constructed an idea about love. I've written down notes all my life. Love feels ooey-gooey and temperamental and careful, and it's reaching into my life and it's making me feel a certain way. That, that's what love feels like. This giving me up for the sake of others, that, that ain't I'm not feeling the love, God. That's what Jesus could be saying in this moment. But it was love, wasn't it? God so loved that he gave his son. It was love in that moment. Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And pain and suffering is a moment in our lives. When it, when it comes, it feels like uh, love forgot about us. Love went on vacation. Pain and suffering in our life seldom makes us immediately turn to God and go, oh, how you love me. Right? When pain and suffering arrives, we begin to want to protect ourselves even from God. This hurts so horribly. I, God, I can't understand where you've gone. Have you overlooked me? God, do you even hear? Do you even care? Right? We're questioning the love of God. But it was the love that sent God into our pain and suffering that was there all along. Tim Keller says, according to Christian theology, suffering is not meaningless neither in general nor in particular instances. For God has proposed to defeat evil so exhaustively on the cross that all the ravages of evil will someday be undone and we, despite participating in it so deeply, will be saved. God is accomplishing this, not in spite of suffering, agony, and loss, but through it. It is through the suffering of God that the suffering of humankind will eventually be overcome and undone. Right? Love is acting when it turns to the Son and says, you take that on. You get under the wrath and the judgment for humanity's sin. Love is doing that to the Son and to us. Love Interacting in suffering and agony and pain. Moments in which we are tempted to say love has gone away. Keller goes on and says, While it is impossible not to wonder whether God could have done it all some other way. God, couldn't you have done this differently without allowing all the misery and grief? The cross assures us that whatever... The unfathomable counsels and purposes behind the course of history, they are motivated by love for us. An absolute commitment to our joy and glory. Listen, whenever you and I are doing life and we pull up to that place, this, this is a moment of suffering, a moment of loss, a moment of pain. It, it, that moment is going to have a fork in the road for every one of us. And one fork is going to make God answer to love the way we've constructed it and say, God, if you really did love me, this wouldn't be happening. And the other fork is going to make love answer to God and going to say, God, I don't understand this moment. I don't understand why this pain in this moment, why this loss, why this tragedy, but I know something about you. I know that you are love and your love is not absent in this moment and you have not overlooked me and you have not forsaken me. I know that's true. So does love answer to God or does God answer to love? Then John turns around and tells us, God so loved the world. God loved The world, God had this kind of sacrificial, pursuing, intense love for the world. Now, I know that that serves us well when you and I want to be included in the love of God. We read that verse and we are, right? We are included in the love of God. But this verse doesn't unpack the characteristics of the world very much. The rest of the Bible does. But this verse just gives you a category. Do we remember how the Bible describes the world? Do we remember how the Bible talks about what we're like by nature that God decided to be so pursuing and caring and coming after us? Do we remember that we're beings who are infected with sin and evil in our lives? We're beings that are not like God. God doesn't look at us and say, oh, You are so much like me. Can we hang out? Can I come over? Why don't you come over? We're beings that don't inspire. We're beings that are repulsive. Do you understand? God's first step towards us is not because we're inspirational beings and he can't wait. Uh, No. We are beings that hate, that resent, that ignore, that oppress, that manipulate, that control, that force everything to be about us. That, that's how the Bible describes who we are. God so loved that, that he gave his son. And this lets us in on something about the nature of love, doesn't it? Because I think as, as human beings, and we'll see this next week as we venture into loving each other, we're pretty good about loving people who are like us. Loving people who meet our standards. Loving people who don't make us uncomfortable because they're different in some way. That we get them, they get us. We've got this chemistry thing. We just hit it off right away. We talk about those people. We let them in. And we go after them. And we're attracted to them. But but what do we substitute for love when none of that stuff is there? Well, you don't do anything for me. You're so different from me, I don't even get you. I don't get your jokes. You don't even have a sense of humor. Uh, I don't enjoy being around you. Your personality is this way and mine's this way. You know, one's an extrovert, one's an introvert. We got all these reasons and categories where I don't, I don't really care. I'm not attracted to you. I don't, I don't want to get in the love circle with you. No, I'm not necessarily going to hate you, but maybe I will if you're like this because I got a hate category too. And if you're one of those categories and types of people that, that you're on the wrong side of who I am, then I hate you. Not only do I not love you, but I hate you. I'm totally against you as well. You and I have these weird conditions in us that inform how I'm going to treat you. But God so loved the world. The people who had no ability to motivate God to move toward them. He so loved them that he turned to his Son. You go and stand in their place. Where does God get that kind of love from? He doesn't get it from us. He doesn't go out and discover it in his creation. It it emanates from his being. God is love. He self-generates a love toward others. So if you and I are going to find ourselves in a community with people that have given us lots of reasons not to even like each other, much less love each other, then we're going to probably have to, if we're going to tune in next week, we're probably going to have to self-generate love. Of course, you and I don't self-do anything. We'll tune into that. This is, this is why we needed 1 Corinthians 1 through 12, right? We're going to learn in 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 3 that we don't self-generate anything. God has come on the scene to put his spirit in us so that the one who generates love himself will now generate it in us, which makes this environment is gonna be a pretty amazing place to live and be a part of because we're gonna be able to love each other with a love that's not our own. All right, one last thought. God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? Passage features love. Whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever would believe in him, God so loved, this is not what the verse says, right? God so loved the world that everybody gets to go to heaven. It could have said that, right? God could have said, everybody has sinned Everybody's guilty, but I love you so much, no one's going to hell. That's what Rob Bell wanted the Bible to say. And quite honestly, I get that. In all of my human ability to collect the bits and pieces and build my little thing called love, I get that. But that's not what this says. God so loved, and his love didn't spare his son, His love didn't make it to where, hey, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. And I'm mysterious. You don't even know how I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it because I just love. I am love. My son is going to stay right here in heaven, be worshipped by all of creation, as he should be. And he will never suffer because I'm love. That's not in this verse, though, is it? Love didn't keep Jesus from having to die in our place. Love doesn't keep you and I from having to respond in faith and belief to God. Whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Well, what about the one who doesn't believe in him? He will not have eternal life. Come on, man, really? That sounds so unloving. I just, can't, I just can't believe that a God who's loving would do that. Yeah, I felt that way standing in my kitchen going, you don't love me. That's about what that looks like to God. Human constructed love who turns to God and say, God, you don't understand. That's not loving Maybe I don't understand all that goes into God being loving enough to tell God when he is and when he is not loving because God is love and there's never a thing that he does that extracts that from who he is and he stops being love for a few moments like he's got some kind of bipolar disorder. God is love Always. And I may not understand this dimension. All right, I I get, I I don't fully understand. But that makes sense to me. I've got a small brain. I've only lived 56 years. I've only read so many books. I've only been around so many things. Of all that there is to know, I don't know much. So it's kind of hard for me to counsel God and tell him where the boundaries of love are and where they are not. But if I'm going to understand love I have to start with God. And God has said whoever would believe would have eternal life. And the one who does not believe is condemned already. So condemnation can live within a few words of the words love of God. That's in John 3:16. You just got to go to John 3:17. And condemnation is in a sentence right next to God. so loved. God is so loving and he's so loved, but you still will be condemned if you don't believe. About the time, or maybe in the same year or so, after Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, Francis Chan spoke into that same topic that was swirling in the body of Christ back then, and he wrote a book called Erasing Hell, because that's what these books like Love Wins were doing. They were erasing the concept of hell and saying, hey, hell doesn't exist. God would never send people to hell. And I appreciate Francis' sentiment here in his book where he says this. He says, do you want to believe in a God who shows his power by punishing non-Christians? and who magnifies his mercy by blessing Christians forever? Do you want to? Be honest. Do you want to believe in a God like this? Here's my gut level honest answer. No. No way. I have family and friends who reject Jesus. I do not want to believe in a God who punishes non-Christians. I don't want to believe that either. Okay, maybe he should punish extremely wicked people. That makes some sense. But punishment in hell for seemingly good people are those who simply chose the wrong religion. That feels a bit harsh, at least according to my sense of justice or my sense of love. But let me ask you another question. Could you? Could you believe in a God who decides to punish people who don't believe in Jesus? A God who wants to show his power by punishing those who don't follow his son. Now that's a different question, isn't it? You may not recognize the difference immediately, but read them again and you'll see that these two questions, do you want to versus could you, are actually miles apart. The problem is that we often respond to the second question because of our response to the first. In other words, because there are things that we don't want to believe about God, we therefore decide that we can't believe them. Let me be more specific and personal. I want everyone to be saved. I do. I don't want anyone to go to hell. The fact is, I would love for all people to stand before Christ on Judgment Day and have a chance to say, they were right all along, Jesus. You really are the Savior. I'm so sorry for not believing in you before. But I believe now. Can I have a second chance? I want to believe in a God who will save everyone in the end. But is this what God says he will do? Do the scriptures teach this? Despite what we may want to believe, we've got to figure out what God told us to believe in his word. That's what this chapter is all about. We're going to tackle the question, does the Bible say that everyone will be saved in the end? Well, since I was little, I started collecting pieces, and ideas and thoughts and feelings and experiences into this thing that I've built this thing called love. And when I built it, it feels like there's no way anybody could go to hell. But here's the problem with that. That's not where love comes from. That's not where love originates. Love is not my creation. It's not me collecting ideas and feelings and thoughts and Creating something that I now tell God, you, eternal, perfect, infinite God, have to answer to what I created. You have to answer to that. And so if you're telling me that somehow you're going to send people to hell because they won't believe, then I consider you unloving and I, I won't trust you. Well, God has revealed himself and God has revealed that he's more like the spokes on the wheel than he is you and I falling in love with one aspect of who he is. God is love and he is all the other things that make him God all at the same time. And that love doesn't spare his son and that love doesn't let any of us go unresponsive to him and think somehow, Everybody just goes to heaven in the end, right? Wrong. The God who loves, so loves, said whoever believes would have eternal life. So listen, before next week, next week we get into this love story and that love story starts to transfer into our lives. But before we can go here, we have to have first made a, made a beeline for God to say, God, we want to learn something about love. We're going to have to come to you. We cannot understand love apart from you because you are love. And this is all included in the love of God. Let's, let's stand up together. You guys are at home, that you're watching at home. You don't have to stand because we can't see you anyway. But if you just would, let me just get alone in your heart. Maybe close your eyes and just let what we've just talked about find its way into your thoughts, into your heart, into your own life, into where you are right now. So whether you're here or you're at home, I just want to draw our thoughts into two categories. It's easy to stand and say, God loves you. Do you know God loves you? And maybe that's not a new thought. Maybe you thought that's always been true. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. That same God who loves you with a perfect love, that's like no human love. He calls on you to respond to his love in faith, in trust, in putting your hope for your life and for your eternity in his hands and in his hands alone. He calls for a moment in which you say, God, I turn to you and I entrust my life to you. You sent your son and I believe that. He died on a cross in my place to forgive me of my sins and I believe that. He came to restore me to you and I believe that. I give my life to him. I put my faith in him. If you've done that, then you are whoever would believe would have eternal life. A life that has been given to you now will never go away. Will always be with you, with God, forever. If you have not responded to God that way, you do not have eternal life. So, this morning, it's not enough for anybody here to know God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Do you understand? God loves but you still need to respond to God's love. So if you need to do that, turn to God right now. Tell him right now, God, I I do, I want to respond. I want to receive this morning, God. I I want your life to come to me. Now, perhaps most of us here today or most of us watching at home can remember at some point in our lives, maybe it was recently, maybe it was years ago, that that we received Jesus Christ into our lives. And then life started to happen and things just didn't always go our way. And life got hard, life got painful, life got tragic, we suffered loss, life felt confusing, And in those moments, we were very tempted. And maybe you're in one of those moments right now. You're very tempted to say, God, you don't love me. And maybe you're here this morning and you're watching at home and God has been at a distance from your life. Because in your mind, God failed to meet the standard of your love. But this morning, I hope by the Holy Spirit, by God's word, you've been able to see that the love of God is much bigger than what you have created. It involves so much more. And the truth of your life is, even though you feel like you've been in this place where God is nowhere to be found and the suffering has been so hard, God has not stopped loving you. His love for you has not changed at all. And he is at work. And maybe the best answer I could give for your situation is, I don't know. And I don't understand. And I don't understand why certain things happen. But I do know this. God loves me and he loves you. That's not what's in question here. So God, I pray for each person here this morning, each person watching from home, Lord, if they've come here and you are at a distance because the pain in their life has made them question your love this morning, God, they would see that the only way to understand love is to seek its place in you. You are love. God, we cannot bring to you love and force it on you to meet our standard. God, we must come to you. With our lives and our hearts open and ask you, God, show us love. Show us infinite love. Show us wise, perfect, majestic, forgiving, merciful, just, righteous, pure, holy love. God, show that to us. Our hearts long for it. We're desperate for it, God. It's gotta come from you. God, would you bring healing into hearts and lives who have just folded their arms turned their backs and just lived in anger toward you because it felt like you didn't love, but God, you never stop loving us. It's just that love's a little bit more complicated than we thought, but you never stop loving us. So God, would you send us today, send us this week, into a love that's got mystery in it and it's got ingredients in it and it's got things in it that maybe we just don't fully get, but we want to, Lord, because you are love and you are the one we love and we know you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Fathers have a wonderful Father's Day. We'll see you guys next week for a love story part three.